Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy VI. When last we left our heroes, they were making a dramatic exit. See what I did there? Very nice. From the opera and onto the only known airship in the world, sort of swindling their way aboard the Blackjack, owned by Setzer Gabaini, world famous gambler who owns this airship, who we're, we have tricked him into believing that Celeste is actually the famous opera singer Maria, who he is trying to kidnap and marry, either in a romantic or creepy way. We're, we were uh, in between on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with creepy. But again, I mean, as we supposed last time, or, or supposition to last time, maybe he already had a, a relationship with her, or maybe he thought he could free her from the shackles of poverty, or I don't know. Either way, it's still kind of creepy. Yeah, and so, uh, in fact, he's so quick in executing his kidnapping that he doesn't even realize at first that Celeste is not Maria and just kind of puts her in a room and says, I'll be right back and shuts the door. And then this really interesting thing happens where Celeste turns and she winks in a room where no one's there. She winks presumably at the camera, at the audience uh, to let us know that, you know, she's about to pull off this trick. She's obviously feeling very coy here, but I also think it's a neat way the game sort of wraps up that whole play within a play. Maybe she's still feeling like she's got her audience. She she was just singing in front of all those people, and she knows she still has an audience out there somewhere. She's given us a little wink. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I I don't think it indicates that Celeste is a fourth wall breaker in the same way Ultros might be, or, or more famously Deadpool. Uh, but I do think, like you said, it's sort of the the game developers winking at us or, or letting us know that like you said, the play within the play is done. Now we're moving back on to the, the play, as it were. As as it were. And so she, she lowers down a rope for the boys. In our party, because of storyline reasons, we've almost always taken Edgar, Sabin, and Locke on this adventure. And uh, that, that's how the it all plays out, I think, most interestingly. So she lets them up. And by the time Setzer returns, there are many more people in the room. I'm uh, back, uh, and I believe there are many more people in the room. Yeah, which is very confusing to him, though why he's got this open area in this room is a bit odd. It sort of looks like it leads down into the engines, so maybe they had to build this room around the engines, which seems a little unsafe, but there you go. Yeah, well, I mean, what do we know about the mechanics of proper airship building? Um, also Very fun little. and worth, yeah, right, uh, worth noting that the uh, Blackjack is built like a blimp. It, it broke the stylings of older airships that always kind of looked like, well, ships, giant ships right. that you would see out on the ocean with sails. This one to reflect the kind of forward-thinking times that uh, we, we've been talking about throughout in the setting of this game, shaped like a blimp. So maybe you have to do it that way. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I, the old airships like had propellers instead of sails, but they all fairly much, they all pretty much looked like ships. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that this looks like a, an old Zeppelin. It also sort of harkens back to, I mean, it reminds me, I know there were Zeppelins other than this, but it reminds me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where 
uh, Dr. Jones Sr. and Dr. Jones Jr. get on the airship. So Setzer recognizes that this is not, in fact, Maria. But then he's okay with that because he says Celeste is prettier than Maria. Uh, and and he's, he's impressed that he's been tricked. And our guys try to appeal to Setzer to let them borrow the airship, saying, hey, man, you've got the only airship. We need to get to the Empire. Edgar pulls the I'm a king card for what it's worth. They're, they're yeah, trying to convince him. If you're looking for some riches. Right. Like, that, that they're trying to appeal to Setzer to get him to let them use his ship. And he's not really impressed by any of the, you know, ethos, pathos, logos that they present him with. Right. He He even says at one point, you know, the Empire has made me a rich man. And uh, they then start to appeal to like, well, yeah, but look at all these horrible things that they've done. And they're trying to enslave the world with magic. And they're rolling over all of these towns and villages. And it's just so awful. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That sounds bad. That sounds bad. That sounds bad. Okay, but look, what about if Celeste marries me? See, still being kind of a creeper. Yeah, like, like he, he is even, not moved by the burning villages and towns and stuff. Right. So even if he doesn't mean it, like even if it's just sort of a let's see what they do with this ridiculous proposition, it's still kind of a creepy move. But Celeste, Celeste is pretty cool. Yeah, she, she's she got a plan. And I love it, too, because she knows exactly the kind of person she's dealing with. Right. And She's probably uh, dealt with people like this in the Empire. Right, and people who believe they live above the rules because, as we talked about before, he almost literally does. He's rich and powerful, and he's got the only airship in the world, and so he doesn't think too much about other people's problems. He wants what he can get, but he does clearly live by some kind of code, and she's got that figured out right away, and she cracks his code within minutes of meeting him. Before we get into just how she cracks the wandering gambler, do we want to do a quick study, character study of Setzer Gabayini? Yeah, I mean, I think we just kind of laid out some of the most interesting things about him, right? That he does begin as a largely unsympathetic but hugely charismatic character, which is a difficult thing to pull off. Uh, usually your Han Solo types like Locke, like even Balthier, you love them at first sight and they are sympathetic. They they might be stealing things. They might be doing things that are untoward according to the laws of the land. But Setzer right here is being incredibly self-interested and self-righteous and very narrowly focused on Celeste's looks and doesn't care about the ills of the world and so I think he's a really effective vehicle for understanding why someone would be that out of touch and how they might eventually come around to understanding that empires are bad for you, too. One of the things they will do here in a moment, and I'll quote the line when we get there, is they will hint that maybe he's not quite so carefree as he might seem. Maybe he's not really quite so above it all. And so I I think one of the ways the story is successful in making Setzer an interesting and sympathetic character, even if not right at the beginning, uh, but eventually is is because of this. And I, 
I, again, I don't. I tend not to choose favorites, but I've always really been drawn to Setzer. I think he's got a cool look with the long jacket and the long gray, uh, you know, the long silver hair, which I eventually will have. I've already got the long hair, but the silver hair, I imagine, will come. Uh, he's got scars on his face, which hint at a at a interesting past, and he throws playing cards. So e- even not being a warrior in the way we are used to, in any other Final Fantasy game, here's a guy who is capable, who knows what he wants, who goes through some interestingly dramatic lengths to get them, and is, we will learn, sympathetic. Absolutely. And he's clearly intelligent and clever. And I think that's part of the reason why, in this case, uh, the boys, Saban, Edgar, and Locke, are appealing. They'd be like, look, you're, you're, you're clearly a smart man. You right. can't believe that you are always going to be free from the Empire. And it's probably true that deep down, Setzer's going, they're right. I should really help them. This has all gone way too far. And if these people can do something about it. But he just met these people who snuck on board his airship. And he's playing. He's very comfortable walking around a room and owning it. And being the smartest, suavest dude in the room. He gets some of the best lines that he just gets to say. At one point, I think, when he finally starts to come around, he says, Oh, what do I have to lose but my life? (laughs) <laughs> right, just, right. Who doesn't want to chill with this guy? So, back to the story at hand. Our hero in this moment, if you have Edgar in the party, she goes to Edgar real quick, and Edgar nods, and then she says, all right, listen here, Mr. Wandering Gambler. I have a proposition for you. Tails, I'll marry you. And Locke objects. Locke's like, uh... Uh, Celeste, what you doing? This is a terrible idea. Of course, he's been upset. He's been on edge ever since uh, Setzer ran with the marry me line in the first place. Locke right. has been watching this whole thing like, hey, so what's going on here? Right, right. You're not falling in love with someone else, are you? So, Tails, I will marry you. But Heads, you help us, no conditions. And, and so you're absolutely right. C- uh, Celeste has a read on this guy. She knows that what he loves to do more than money more than go to the opera, more than steal and marry a pretty girl, as he loves to gamble. He likes putting his life in the hands of fate. He's very much like Two-Face in that way. <laughs> oh, interesting, yeah. Though Two-Face is, is a, a, a compulsion, I think. I feel right. like Setzer's is a, del- a deliberate choice. Yes. All right. Either way, so uh, Celeste flips the coin, and it lands heads, which means we win. You're going to help us out. So Locke is very relieved. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now Setzer, not being a fool, picks up the coin and says, hey, this is a two-headed coin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You cheated me. Uh, And and Celeste is like, I guess you got swindled. And, And he loves it. He is very impressed. And and he says, you know what? You're right. I got played. That's the way it goes. And he's got this line that's pretty corny, but I love it. He says, he says, my life is a chip in your pile. Annie up. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always really liked that line. It's a good one. Uh, and then there's another added layer. And 
comedic moment and kind of not entirely just funny, but in a way tragically comedic, which is, God, this game is good, uh, where Saban goes, hey, Edgar, isn't that the coin? What? And he just kind of sort of trails off and it gets caught up in the chaos. And I love the way it works, but it's not said directly outright, but more than heavily implied that the coin Edgar handed over to Celeste is the same one they flipped to decide who would rule over the kingdom of Figaro, and that by using the coin with two heads on it, Edgar let his brother off the hook, that he yeah. he took the fall. It was never really a fair coin toss. It was him saying, I'll do it, but, but not even telling him, not even being the hero to his brother, just letting him off the hook, making him feel like yep. it was fair the whole way. Yeah. Because I don't think a guy like Saban could have allowed himself to leave if he thought that it would be unfair. Right. Oh, so good. So good. (laughs) At this point, the game takes you to the Imperial Continent. is a really interesting very cinematic moment that parallels the beginning of the game where you're marching toward Narsh in the Magitek suits with Terra and Biggs and Wedge and it's a behind the shoulder camera angle Uh, normally when you're walking around on the map you've got this overhead angle that we've had for every Final Fantasy game ever Uh, Six did do this interesting thing where when you hopped on a chocobo the camera would go around behind you and you would get this sort of third person over the shoulder look but because this is our first time in the airship it's our first time seeing that angle from the sky and not only that but it marches us across this dark and at one point seemingly endless ocean and much the way Narsh kind of appeared out of a a sea of white snow in the beginning out of the ocean we begin to see first before anything else the lights the search lights in the sky what so if this is the only airship what are they searching for yeah yeah maybe it's just paranoia in general well, we know there is monsters out there, and we know they're on the lookout for espers. And if you've played the game before, you know there's at least one flying around. Yeah, yeah. But uh, also just this very first kind of spine-tingling indication that, yeah, you're going to the place where all the technology is. They don't have searchlights anywhere on the continents we've been. Nothing like that. Right. As, as advanced as Figaro Castle is. This place is more so, maybe not as creatively, but it certainly appears to be more advanced. Just the the way that fortress, and it, it's like a modern kind of fortress, not a, not a fortress in the way that Doma or Figaro is, just rises out of the darkness with the searchlights. We're like flying low and it's dark and yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty... Uh, I don't know, shiver-inducing, I guess, 
the the music that plays on the march to Narsh is Terra's theme, and it sounds kind of like a march. But the music that plays as we're flying to Vector to the Imperial continent is it's more the Imperial theme than Terra's theme is, but it's not a march. Right. Well, it's a very very slow version of the normal troop marching theme uh, from the rest of the game. And again, it just, yeah, it really slows your heart rate. And this is another Joseph Campbell-type crossing the threshold moment of now going into the heart of the Empire. It's one thing to defend your homeland and, and defend your friends and your family and your country, but to go into the jaws of the beast. Right. Uh, yeah. The belly of the whale, perhaps, might be yes. the part of the hero's journey we're in now. Right. So there's a brief conversation had wherein one of our characters says to Setzer something along the lines of, uh, you know, this thing's kind of unwieldy. Could it fall? And Setzer replies, when things fall, they fall. It's a matter of fate. Which is the thing I was referring to earlier when we sort of hint at you know, maybe he's got a backstory that makes him more sympathetic. Maybe he does have some world experience that does not include being uh, a high roller dilettante. Right. And and we'll get to that when we get to that part of the story in uh, in the world of Ruin. But I really like that line because it does show that he does think about things. Right. And I think there's the general intelligence that he displays, like no one who's that smart can go too long without thinking a little deeper about some stuff. So because the airship sticks out, they do not park it right by the capital city of Vector. Instead, they park it by the town of Albrook. So I said earlier we're going to the Imperial Continent. Vector is the capital of the Empire, and the first places it conquered were these cities on this continent. So it sort of makes it seem like Vector, the city, considered itself an empire just as a city. Or, or certainly a, a ruling power just as a city, and then had to like go out and uh, capture these other cities. We'll go through this part pretty quickly because there's not a whole lot to do in these towns, but there are three other towns. The first one is Albrook, as I just said. Uh, and the town music here is not kids run through the city, but it's what I think of as the sad town music. Which is a noted difference from where we've been before. It is quickly made clear that Albrook has been occupied by the Empire. Again, making it seem like Vector was an empire just as a city for a while. Or maybe they declared themselves an empire once they started conquering these other towns. Uh, but there are Imperial troopers all over the place. People talk about having to bribe them. There's a cafe that is overrun with rude soldiers. Uh, all the women here are serving and they seem to be having a good time with the soldiers so they've sort of bought in I guess or at least are pretending to one woman says in any case you're probably all broke which could mean a variety of things uh, you know you don't have money to spend here money on what well yeah th there are some implications there maybe yeah the whole thing has this vibe of like if you've ever seen a movie or a television show when like heroes maybe go undercover to like a, a Nazi bar or party. I think of that in Inglorious Bastards and Quentin Tarantino stuff where like there are a lot of people having a good time, but there's an eerie 
dramatic irony with us being there that it's like nothing about this. It, like all the there's this like happy piano music playing and people dancing and right. and drinking right. and laughing and we're just kind of like yeah uh, if we say anything wrong we're going to be killed immediately. Right, right. There's a dock that will become important later, but for now is blocked by uh, Magitek soldiers. There's a guy who says, Emperor Gestal asked me to paint his portrait. What if he doesn't like it? Which is not important at the moment. And then there's a guy who says he's an expert on weapons, and he refers to the Atma weapons. There were two, he says. One was a sword, and one was a monster. Yeah. We'll come back to that. <laughs> we will, yeah, that'll, that'll be important later. And the word Atma. That'll be fun, too. Right. So, Tzen, spelled T-Z-E-N. I've always said Tzen. I, I think other people say Tzen. Either way, the only two things here that are of note to me, storyline-wise, uh, that the, the royal family of Tzen was killed by the Empire, and apparently relatively recently, and that the youths of Tzen were uh, taken to serve as Imperial troopers, which, interesting to me, Parallels what Finn says about the um, uh, the Empire, the First Order. Sorry, what Finn says about the First Order stealing children to raise to be stormtroopers uh, in the new Star Wars trilogy. No longer using clones, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I think one of the overwhelming senses you get just from walking around all three of these cities is this kind of lost culture that these are people living under rule or as the song under martial law, they can't be who they've been before. It's the age old story, whether it's, you know, the Irish having to invent river dancing so that the British soldiers couldn't see them or whatever it may be. It's this weird manipulation of culture that's going on where uh, these people who are, locals from before don't feel like they can be themselves and everybody else who lives there with power and money now is just uh, a member of the imperial march as it were and uh, it's pretty brutal the third town is miranda and we've heard of miranda a couple times before so it is said to have been the most beautiful town on the continent and now it's all burned and wrecked and if you were paying attention earlier you might remember that Cyan mentioned this. Cyan told us that General Celeste was the one who sacked Miranda. So bringing her back here is uh, particularly interesting, I think. But we don't get any sort of, uh, like, she doesn't stop in town and, and look around and, and have any regrets or anything, which I think would have been a cool thing to do. There is also a woman here whose boyfriend is wounded and, and living in Mobles. And he's the guy whose letters we sent earlier in the game. And right. you can do this now that you've got the airship. Once you, once you have free reign, you can do sort of a back and forth and go to the town and send a letter and come back. And she's received it and, and have a fun little uh, back and forth there. The only other thing of note here uh, is that there's a, a section in the town square where there's dogfighting. And there's citizens and kids and, and Imperial troopers all watching the dogfight. Again, their, their culture has been twisted. So finally, we can go to Vector. Vector has a, a sort of town as we would know it from Final Fantasy VI on the bottom row, and then you can go up, and there's other things. 
So on the bottom section, uh, it's got that ominous town music again. There's an inn that you can stay at, but if you do, you run the risk of getting robbed 100 GP. There's a, a tiny little house with someone who appears to be a returner sympathizer because she says, pledge your allegiance to the Empire, and if you say no, uh, you have to fight a couple of soldiers. And when you defeat the soldiers, she will say, young people, uh, you know, do what you can, and she will revive your HP and MP. Uh, there's mentions of Sid here. A woman says, he gave my child the gift of magic, and if you talk to the kid, he will heal everybody for one magic point, or one, he or one hit point, rather. And then you can go up to uh, this upper section where if you run into any of the soldiers, you have to fight them. And then even if you win, you get sent back to the entrance at town. Uh, there is a cafe here where someone will tell you that uh, Kefka was Sid's first experiment and it drove him crazy. Yeah, and that's really the only thing that we ever get in terms of... I don't know if you would call it justification, certainly a reason for Kafka's actions throughout the story. In the next Final Fantasy, a big deal is made about the justifications or, or the reasons behind what Sephiroth ends up doing. But, uh, and a lot of times that's the case, certainly Final Fantasy IX, um, some of the villains in eight have very pronounced motives, one of them has very strange and very difficult to understand motives. Uh, for uh -huh. the most part here, we've just accepted from the beginning that Kafka is crazy, and I'm not sure we ever really needed a reason to believe that that was true for some reason, but here we have one, uh, and it's kind of interesting. I don't know, is it? does it matter to you? Do you feel like it, it's better one way or the other if your villain is maybe a little bit sympathetic or not at all sympathetic? And does this make Kefka more sympathetic? I like understanding why characters do what they do. So knowing that Kefka perhaps went crazy because of the experiments, I think is interesting. I think, I, I kind of feel like blaming uh, all your bad actions on a past trauma is a little bit not taking responsibility for one's actions. But I can understand how in this case it made a person who was probably already kind of power hungry even more. Uh, I don't know when these experiments were done on him, if they were done on him as a kid as they were Celeste. I kind of think so. Uh, just because that would make sense because it appears that Celeste, Kafka, and Leo are all the same age or of a similar right. age. Or he's much older and <laughs> because of the Could experiments, be. he doesn't age or something. There's so much mystery about him, which I like. Uh, like I said, this is really, it's one or two sentences about his past from this random returner sympathizer in the middle of Vector. Right. I think it can be kind of a, a slippery path to take, making your villains' goals or, or methods or, or whatever feel too uh, understandable. For example, in, uh, in the recent Avengers movies, Thanos' goal and his, his reasons for having his goal could seem reasonable, and I kind of feel like there should have been a scene where somebody said, you know, Thanos, like, I kind of get where you're coming. There's a certain logical proget progression to what you're saying, 
but you're full of shit because yeah. one that would never work and two you are murdering people right. so and and like nobody ever says i mean he's the bad guy so i think we're made we're, we're meant to understand one he's full of shit that would never work and two you're murdering people right. and those are bad things but i kind of wish somebody had had you know maybe not looked into the camera and winked but you know mm-hmm. bruce banner has said you you know that's not going to work you have to know that's not going to work and so i think i think a story writer walks a fine line when they go too far in trying to justify the villain's actions not that we shouldn't understand not that even we shouldn't be sympathetic but unless you want the theme of your story to be actually the villain is the good guy, you got to be kind of careful there. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's a very fine line. I'll be honest with you. I find a lot of the villains whose reasons are the most justified, some of the most compelling. I'll point to one of my favorite examples was in Netflix's Daredevil season one because we know one of the things that Matt Murdock can do is tell if people are lying. And he has already set himself up on a collision course with the kingpin, and he knows he's got to take this guy down, and he's doing all of these brutal things, and he can't stand that he's doing this murderous tactics, and so he assumes he must also have legitimately ill intent, and he hears him giving this speech where he says, you know, I just want to make my city a better place, and Matt hears that he's telling the truth. Right. And I, I, I find that remarkably compelling because now our dilemma isn't quite so crystal clear and, and black and white. It's really over a matter of methods. And then between those two, because they're both violent, then it's really over the thinnest difference. One sure. guy kills, the other guy doesn't. You know, and, and we're talking about war here now in Final Fantasy VI, Presumably, the Returners have taken some lives. In Our battles. characters have taken lives, yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. We talked about frying guys in the escape from Figaro Castle and then stopping to be bug-eyed about it. <laughs> right, know? right. Uh, and obviously, so, Terra's killed a bunch of people. Celeste has killed a bunch of people. So, you know, what does set them apart from Kefka? And is it just that they're not crazy and he is? Yeah, So, so when I was saying the thing about the, that being a fine line. I So your Daredevil uh, example is interesting because the whole point of that series is that the line is fine, right? That That's the whole idea. Right. You know, the Kingpin, the Kingpin is also, like he wants to make his city a better place, but he's also very self-aggrandizing, uh, or that's not, he, he's self-enriching, right? right? I want to make this city a better place, but also I'm making it better for me. Right. Whereas, right, right. whereas Matt Murdock wants to make it better for the old lady he represents in apartment 2A or whatever. Right. So similarly, Harvest I think... And Bannon and stuff. Right, yeah. So so our guys are fighting for everybody, whereas the Empire is fighting for itself, or Kefka is fighting for himself. Right. Again, I like knowing the villain's motivations. I like knowing Thanos' motivations. Uh, again, unless your point is that the the there's a fine line between our side and your side, which I don't think the Avengers was getting at, which is why I no, kind of wanted someone no. to call Thanos out on his bullshit. I agree. I agree. 
but like they do at the end of this game, not to get way ahead of ourselves, but there's right. literally a moment where the characters and so we can get back to this, you know, are tasked with state your actual right. opposition. Why? Why do you believe in this fight? Sort of the way uh, Agent Smith gives Neo at the end of The Matrix. He just asks, him, why do right. you keep doing this? What is your thesis? Right. And so to know that Kefka was driven mad is interesting. I like it. Like, I like knowing that. Me too. We don't really get into any of his, you know, we, we don't have his thesis really, except that he wants to see everything burn because he's a crazy person. I get the impression, right. though, because my kind, like, if I were to go crazy, it would be a very different kind of crazy than Kefka's, I, I would think. And so I, I kind of think that he was already kind of that person to some degree, but we don't get that from the story. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see that fleshed out a little bit more and get some understanding of him as maybe a small child with already troubling tendencies. And, you know, Sid picked the wrong kid to mess with first and, and have it go wrong. And, and it just exacerbated his already really troubling personality traits. Sure. There's also a person who just kind of randomly mentions here, and like in a snide way, I think it's meant to be taken, that General Leo refused to have any of the experiments with magic done on him, that he doesn't want the power, and they, they kind of look down on him for that. And we've already discussed why you know we find him to be a sympathetic character, so we already kind of like Leo, and now they're looking down on him, and there's this whole extension of like the overt fascist symbols that we're seeing also vector is draped in these big red and black symbols yeah. uh, <laughs> the very nazi looking and then there's this notion that power is what ought to be desired and it is what makes you valuable and the people who have the most power and the most money as we've talked about they're the ones who are valuable the people who don't are not and can be cast aside and even killed because they're not worth anything. They are legitimately lesser than. And uh, we see that in the thirst for, for power and, and Magitek in particular, taking out the espers and what we're about to see once we get to the research facility. There is this pretty overt parallelism to the eugenics movement that drove nazism and, and fascism in that era that allowed people to believe that they were legitimately superior to other human beings it's the mindset that allows this kind of ugliness to spread so the thing that happens next is if you want you can try to go through the front doors of the the fortress of vector <laughs> just walk right in you know yeah yeah but there's a guy uh who Actually, it's a it kind of looks like the Imperial Guards from the original Star Wars movies, those red robe dudes. So there is a guy in these uh, fancy robes, and he immediately recognizes you as Returner Scum. Uh, and a couple yes. of soldiers jump down and activate this robot called the Guardian. And we actually, depending on who all you talk to in those various towns, you will have heard of the Guardian. It's a monster that cannot move. Uh, but is extraordinarily powerful, and you cannot deal it any damage. You have to run away. Yeah, by the way, another Star Wars reference. Oh, Returner Scum? Yeah. Fair enough. Rebel Scum? Sure. I love I the reappropriation so. of that, too. 
when uh was it Finn is just called scum and he says, uh, Hey Rebel Scum. Rebel Scum. <laughs> so there is a yet another returner sympathizer in town. There's an old man who will say, Hey, st- st- this way. I've heard of you. You're the returners. I'll make a distraction. You guys climb up on these boxes and, and and crawl over these girders. And then he goes over and pretends to be sick on these soldiers because you can't get into this part of town because there are soldiers there. Uh, and he like pretends to throw up on them. And so our party is able to sneak into the Magitech Research Facility. So this area is a dungeon. You can get attacked here by various kinds of enemies. Uh, It's a maze. There's lots of different kinds of treasure here. And man, does it have some cool music. Drew, what would you say Uematsu is doing with this music? Yeah, okay. I don't think I should repeat uh, what I said to you just a few moments ago. That you cut (laughs) out, right? You edited that out? That I edited out. About what Uematsu is doing here. I'll say he's he's flexing his muscles. Or if anyone is a sports fan, uh, are you familiar with bat flipping or dancing right. in the end zone? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> dunking on somebody. This piece of music from Nobuo Uematsu, is, he's showing off the, these industrial beats, this clear setting of a completely different kind of atmosphere than we've been in to the story up to this point it's been one of my favorites for a very very long time of just pieces of random music this is the only place we're going to hear it and in this place this is such a cool memorable dungeon or or just factory that again as part of the setting of the steampunk and we're now seeing the magitech being made after all of this time of it playing such a role in the story and uh, it's yeah it's just cool and funky but still scary and it strikes a perfect weird tone good stuff yeah I I really like that you use the word industrial to, to talk about the music because this whole dungeon is made of metal the floors are metal the walls are metal there are pipes and conveyor belts and hooks and gears. The whole thing is is deliberately meant to look like nothing else on this world. Uh, and this song is like nothing else we will hear in this world. So in making your way through this maze of metal, we suddenly hear a familiar laugh. And the, this laugh has always been unsettling, but this is the first time that it really caught me so off guard and startled me. Like, I, I think this is such a good use of this laugh. It comes from off screen. And then Kefka's here. We know now that he was driven crazy by these experiments. We've seen what he can do, what he's willing to do. 
and what he's capable of of doing to us. We we've never lost to him in a fight, but we know he is formidable. And then what we what we see him or what what happens next is he uh, claims to be all powerful. I'm all powerful. I'm collecting espers. I'm extracting magic, and soon I'll restore the statues. Yeah, and that's all that's said about that. A nice little piece of foreshadowing or getting uh, seed planting. There's, uh, you know, I, I, I know you don't watch and, and haven't, and, and one day you will, just as I will take in The Last Airbender and Steven Universe. But <laughs> there was much consternation recently over the ending of Game of Thrones, and I mostly enjoyed it, but a lot of people were... I, I think fairly disappointed that a lot of seeds that were planted never really came to fruition. And if that's something you want in your fantasy epic, Final Fantasy VI is damn near perfect at doing this. There are a lot of things you don't necessarily need to plant an early seed for. You mentioned in a previous episode a random character saying, you know, I sure would like to own a Coliseum one day. They didn't need to do that. <laughs> Right. There could have just been a Coliseum one day, and nobody really would have questioned it. But they give you a little piece if you're willing to walk around and talk to everybody so that that seed eventually becomes a thing. And there's just so much of that throughout the game. And here's another one where a gigantic plot piece is introduced in a kind of offhand remark here from Kefka while he's mostly just celebrating his own power. And we also get a hint about what his goal is here about not again not his motives but what his plan is he's not just we knew he was trying to get power all the power he wants all the power he wants all the magic but what's he going to do with all of that might have something to do with these statues what he does with it right in this moment is there are a couple other people here but it's kind of easy to miss them because they don't move around there is a woman with blue skin uh, and a man with uh, yellowish skin, I guess. And he grabs them and he throws them down into the garbage chute. So we've fought Kefka before and he was not this physically strong before to be able to grab even an inert person and just hurl them into this pit. And it's kind of disconcerting. I, I, I think the the implication is that he is getting stronger. He has gotten physically stronger and he's becoming magically stronger. It's also a reminder that he does not yet know the best way because if he knew that killing these espers would be the best way for him to get their power, no doubt he would oh, do yeah. so. No he would doubt. off him in a moment. Yeah. And later he will. But for right now, uh, he says, you're useless to me because they've been drained of their power and tosses, uh, who we will soon learn, are Ifrit and Shiva into the trash. So we, being the upstanding people we are, want to help these folks. And so we, uh, once Kefka leaves, hop down into the trash with them. Uh, and there's the, it's just this big pit. There are bones and stuff lying around. And you can try to talk to Shiva, but she doesn't respond. If you try to talk to Ifrit, he attacks. Uh, and then you have a, a fight with Ifrit. Fight goes on long enough, he'll, he'll tag in Shiva. And they'll go back and forth for a little bit. And then, eventually they will sense the other espers. They something like, I sense a kindred spirit. And they will realize, oh, our friends, including Ramu, has given these, these human beings, or has entrusted them with his power. And so with their powers drained, 
They, uh, I think Ifrit says something about having suffered his turn in one of the glass tubes, which we will see shortly. But they follow Ramu's lead. They, they turn themselves into magicite and give themselves over to our heroes. Uh, and it's kind of like in Final Fantasy V, as these crystals are growing brittle and then shattering, on the one hand, civilization is collapsing all around us, and that is a bad thing. On the other hand, more superpowers. <laughs> more magical ability powers, and Ifrit and Shiva have some of the best ones. Also, classic Final Fantasy staples. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ifrit, Shiva, and Ramu are, are together again. So from this trash shoot, this trash pit, pit of where you throw people who once had magical powers, uh, you, you can go up these stairs uh, and you can get all the way to the top. And there's a, there's a boss here who's one of those bosses that can change its weakness. It's called like number 24 or something like that, 024. There's a lot of like machines and stuff in here, stuff that's not even like Magitech. They're just straight right. up robot machines. So you defeat that boss and you get into this facility and you see the glass tubes. And you actually go through two of these rooms, uh, which I forgot. So there's one room where there's nothing uh, or where there's the glass tubes, but there's nothing in them. And then you get to the room where there's glass tubes and there are espers in them and they're floating there and there's six of them. And it's really horrifying. You were talking about the sort of paralleling this Nazi imagery. I don't imagine, you know, Nazis had Magitech. I mean, I could imagine it that there's lots of movies about, you know, what if the Nazis were really able to do occult things. But I, you know, if we, we talk sometimes about what would we do if we were remaking this as a HBO animated series or whatever. Well, yeah, I would make this look as much like those sort of sci-fi Nazi horror movies, shows, images as I could, because it's really pretty horrifying. Yeah, that's exactly how it looks and feels in the original. You're meant to be horrified by what you're seeing, what's kind of locked underneath in the hidden secrets of the fascist empire, the the dirty work that's being done to deliver the power. And, you know, there were in real life a lot of horrible experiments that were done by the Nazis to actual people, some of which, and this is one of the horrible things about human history, actually led to some inventions that have helped a lot of people. And it's one of those things that if the more you learn about it, it it's just absolutely horrifying. And again, you could see how maybe Magitech could make a lot of people's lives better. But and why some people might live in denial and say, well, look at all the good that it's doing, that we have all of this power and that we can do these things. And I would imagine it could produce, you know, more crops and more industry. But an industry is oftentimes a big argument in, in favor of fascists. They, they will say we can create a lot more with all of this power. But then you see the cost of that creation. So our characters right. coming upon this room, I think, would be like walking into one of those rooms where the Nazis experimented on human beings, maybe for the betterment of science, but they experimented on human beings. Right. And, and to further that, the, the argument of economics and industry is what people use to justify slavery in our country for many, many, many years. 
and that has had a lasting impact on our society today. Even the, uh, the war that began the empire in Star Wars, it was a trade war, right? It was a <laughs> right. the trade yeah. negotiations. It was about industry. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty spot-on cutting right to the meat of why this type of thinking just is wrong. Like you said, take, sometimes taking the ambiguity out of it is a really powerful statement to make, as you were saying. And this, when you're up against fascism and empire, I think that's a pretty good stance to take and, and, and putting it right out there in front and, and seeing what happens next. I, I think for us as kids, for people who were playing this game, it was a pretty powerful sentiment to see, no matter what the argument may be, this is wrong. So at the top of this room, our heroes find a switch. And when you see a big switch in a room of people being tortured, I, I think the obvious assumption is that turning that switch off will stop the torture. So since we are the good guys and fascism is clearly bad, let's pull the switch. But as you're about to do so, we hear a voice. It says, you want to help me, but I haven't long to live. So just as Ifrit and Shiva before me, and it sort of, sort of trails off, and then all six espers. So all six espers turn to magicite, and then the tubes shatter. And the magicite homes in on our heroes, and, and they have, again, gifted their lives to us. They've put their superpowers in our hands, presumably in hopes that we can help defeat this, this horrifying empire. And I think this is even more far subtler foreshadowing because nothing is said directly about what's to come. But in hindsight, you realize that these espers would know that the empire has some concept, not just of continuing their holocaust against the espers that they can find, but of potentially attacking the esper world at some point. So they know that they're going to need these heroes to be equipped with the ability <laughs> equipped with the abilities to take on the empire. So that's a big part of why they are making these sacrifices as well. Someone has to stop this. So this is where we are introduced to Sid, a man in a yellow what, overcoat, suit of some kind comes rushing in and says what are you doing there? And he sees what's going on and he immediately recognizes, oh, oh, this is how it works. Magical power can only truly be fully transferred when an esper passes away. So like that he has this, you know, this galaxy brain epiphany all of a sudden is, I think, speaks to his genius. Do we want to do a quick character study on Sid here? Sure. I think we can go through it pretty quickly. We'll learn more about him and a lot right here about him that he is sort of the classic captured scientist again nazi parallels and this happens in countless james bond films and and any number of other places where actually i'm, I'm going through the second season of she-ra right now and entrapped yeah. the genius scientist who's maybe more occupied by as i mentioned a moment ago the advancements in science. Hey, look at all the cool stuff we're doing and, and is kind of focused on that and has the human cost part we were talking about or if they've accepted this 
espers aren't human, aren't people, are subhuman nonsense narrative that they can put all of that to the the back of their minds. So there's there's something about Sid that's absolutely to be admired because he's clearly not somebody with hate in his heart or who even really cares about power. That's too ambiguous of a concept for a scientist like Sid. He cares about the advancement of knowledge and of science, and those are very honorable pursuits. But this is another reminder, and one we get often in Final Fantasy, that those pursuits must be tempered with some humanity. Yeah, it does feel a little like... So So on the one hand, it feels a little like... He, I mean, he still went along with it, right? He still is draining these beings of their power. He's still torturing these people, whether or not they're humans, right? And and so he still did some bad things. And SIDS are often at least somewhat responsible for the power of the bad guys, for the power uh, of the Empire. Like in Final Fantasy IV, SID builds the airships for the the army of baron in final fantasy 5 he builds the amplification machines but both of those sids were just trying to see what neat thing they could do next this sid even if he's a captured scientist is absolutely torturing people and i like this character like i got a lot of sympathy for this dude but still he went along with it so sid recognizes general celeste and and they're happy to see each other, which is one of the reasons I like Sid, because apparently he was a good person to Celeste, at the very least. And he says, and who might these dubious characters be? Your troops? Which sort of feels like a gentle grandfatherly ribbing, which I like. Right, that he knows something else is going on, but also only kind of. It's, it's unclear, especially considering what's about to unfold, which side he's being coy on. Right, right. But almost immediately... Kefka enters the scene and and he has he has overheard Sid's explanation and he says oh you know so that's it that's how it you do it and then he insults Sid I think he calls him a blockhead or something and then he says to Celeste now the game is over and of course Locke is is confused and upset you know what's going on you know are are you really like are you know was this a trap are you really a spy essentially yeah, and poor Locke, you know, just a a few moments ago we were talking about how he was feeling heartbroken by Celeste that perhaps she was betraying some feelings. He felt like maybe they'd had a moment in preparation for the opera and here she is offering to marry some other dude and now she is betraying his loyalties. She is betraying the returners and his friends and all of them, that it's it's been revealed here that Celeste, in fact, was a spy all along, and it is time for her to return to the Empire, and Locke is, like, doubly heartbroken and absolutely beside himself. Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, I do, I do feel bad for him in this instance. Uh, but Celeste says, Locke, have a little faith. Yeah, and uh, our heroes are attacked by a pair of Magitek soldiers. Celeste manages to dodge to the side while while the uh, other three members of your party are smashed up against the wall, and Sid runs 
the heck out of there. Smart. Again, smart. <laughs> yeah, smart. The smart guy avoids the conflict. Yeah. And then Celeste has this moment where, you know, nobody's nobody can hear her. Uh, but she says, Locke, let me protect you for once. And she climbs back up. She sort of like tossed herself off the side and grabbed onto a railing. And she pulls herself back up and uh, she faces down Kefka. And she uses, I assume, some sort of a teleportation spell to get herself, Kefka, and all the other Imperials out of the room. Escape, isn't it? I think. <laughs> but yeah. It's, right, right. It's Make it seem like an cool. escape. Super cool. And Celeste, uh, at this point, leaves the party. Uh, yeah. Locke, for his part, uh, when he gets up, he is very disappointed. If you have Cyan with you, he will say something along the lines of, you know, he suspected her. Uh, of, I told you so. Yeah, basically. And he's not entirely wrong. Right. And Sid comes back and says, you know, all the energies of this place are are sort of spilling out into the fortress and things are going bad and you have to escape. Like that and scene I can help in Ghostbusters. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> it's a sign. <laughs> yeah, a sign of going out of business. <laughs> right. Sid takes our heroes down on an elevator and he says something that I kind of object to here. He says, Kefka used me and used the Empire. And I'm thinking, what? Really? Really? We're about to have a scene where we see Emperor Gestal 20-some years ago when he finds a baby in the woods. I don't think Gestal was used at all, and I don't know why Sid thinks Gestal has anything other than selfish, imperialistic motivations. I can see how Sid might think he was used. Maybe if we go on that assumption that you were talking about earlier, where he feels like the advancement of science is to the betterment of everybody, I can kind of get that. But, dude, you still went along with torturing these people. Did you really not know what the heck the Empire is doing? You didn't know why General Celeste was a general, right? You, you, you don't know that she's going out there and taking over other cities, that she torched Mer the city of Miranda? Are you like, the I only person in this story who hasn't heard that Terra torched 50 Imperial soldiers? Right. Because so far, everyone else has mentioned that. And ha were you not actually, would, wouldn't you have been there to been see there it to happen? See, right. You, you would think you would have overseen that. So I'm, I'm with you. But again, not uncommon for, you know, the Nuremberg trials were a thing and for even Nazis and people that played a role to come out and say, well, you know, I only made the films, you know, like, right, like, right. or whatever. Like, no, dude, no, you, you don't get to turn around and say, well, I didn't really mean it now. Um, right. But you do feel bad for him. I know. And again, it's a fine line. Like, why are we OK with Celeste getting out? Uh, she played her role as well. Right. Um, right. So so we will see Sid's turn also. And, and we kind of see it here because he says, I'm going to talk to the emperor and we're going to stop this war. And while it feels like a little late. That he has that kind of in with the emperor is pretty impressive. And that yeah. he thinks he can actually do this. Like he's putting himself on the line here. Yeah. So, I again, I like this character. Yeah, he clearly has a compass. Yeah. Yeah, I think he probably thought he was doing, he was operating from a utilitarian standpoint, right? It's the trolley problem. We're going to run over the espers to make everything better for everybody else. 
Right. Now, of course, the real trick is, you know, the only way to win is not to play. But that's not really how utilitarians think. So, fine. So he gets you down to this minecart. There's this fun, you know, we've already talked about some of the sort of pseudo 3D cutscenes we've had in Final Fantasy VI. This is like kind of like the uh, Serpent Trench where you're, you sort of get to control going left or right and you fight these monsters and it's this kind of 3D looking cutscene. So, of course, there's some fun boss fights through this crazy 3D tunnel thing and uh, eventually end up on the other side of it. Uh, Setzer is waiting there with the getaway airship <laughs> for the party. Uh, you, you make your way to him. And on the way out, out of that one of those large towers that we talked about before, seemingly made of steel, again, more modern and advanced than anything else in the world, rises these large mechanical cranes, like arms, that uh-huh. are clearly meant for grabbing and stopping flying machines. And again, they've got search engines. They seem to be awfully prepared to be attacked from the sky. <laughs> and and it yeah. comes in handy here because they can you, you can be attacked, and again, it kind of stops. It's like the battle with the train. It's sort of a weird Super Nintendo-y thing. You'd probably have to go through this a bit quicker in a modern adaptation, maybe take one of them out, narrowly escape, whatever you do. But the you still got to have those giant, weird mechanical arms come out of the tower oh, yeah. to yeah, try absolutely. to take down the blackjack and narrowly escape, presumably with some awesome piloting by Setzer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And throwing of cards. Right. In fact, I think we get a little bit of this scene in those CGI cutscenes that came with the PS1 version of it. You can see him doing exactly that. And so our heroes escape the Empire. They have now uh, several pieces of magicite, and perhaps, as Ramu suggested, one of them, one of the crystallized souls of these magical beings, will be able to assist our friend, Terra. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org or on Patreon, if you want to download it on your regular podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we learn about the true origins of Terra, discover the sealed gate, and witness the end of the world.